Thank you all for coming. Well, now I have a story. I have a story. I first conducted in 1982 by accident uh, in London because I was a pianist for opera singers and I got a call very late one night saying that Covent Garden had a touring show of Orpheus and Eurydice and could I step in and conduct the premiere at three days notice because oh the conductor had leukemia, had just been diagnosed. And so uh, I said, well, thank you very much for the offer, but I don't conduct. I've never conducted in my life. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> and Jenna, who has changed the course of my life in a hundred wonderful ways, said, oh, honey, call them back. How hard can it be? <laughs> so I called them back. It's 11 at night, right? And, and I said, OK. And they said, oh, well, be there at 10 AM tomorrow morning, Orpheus and Eurydice. So I was there. Now, these guys had just played under Colin Davis the night before. And, uh, anyway, miraculously, it all worked out. And a few days later, I was conducting Orpheus and Eurydice. And um, a couple years later, I got a job at the Vienna Chamber Opera as the house conductor. And I showed up to my first matinee. And they looked at me, shocked, and they said, but where, where is your silver tie? I said, what are you talking about? And I said, don't you know in Wien, in Vienna, you always wear a silver tie when you conduct a matinee? And the whole orchestra was sitting there in silver ties. Because at the time, in Viennese orchestras, there were no women, so everybody was wearing a tie. And uh, one of them tore off his tie, and I put it on, and I have kept it. So this is that. Silver tie. <laughs> and we... We did a performance of Die Diebische Elster, which is the German, ver everything we did was in German. Uh, it was the German version of La Garza Ladra, The Thieving Magpie by Rossini. And um, every few weeks we would change the shows and the pit was very small, so it was all for 30 instruments or fewer. And uh, it didn't matter if, if it was scored for 60 or 80. Herr Illich would write out the Umschreibung, the, the reduction, and give it to the orchestra and the orchestra would play. And at the rehearsals, if they didn't like it, they would just throw it over their shoulders and say, this is like playing in a kurort. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is not Baden-Baden. This is a serious opera house in Wien. So, Illich, would you write more parts? And this was my time in the trenches learning about conducting. But what I want to pass on to you about conducting is that um, it looks like we're up there doing nothing because, of course, music is all about sound, and we're the one person who's not making any sound. But somehow, through movement, but a lot more than movement, uh, one really does create something that, without a conductor, could not be created. So now let's rewind several hundred years. Um, Bach and Handel and all of the Baroque composers did conduct, but the understanding of conducting was a very different proposition, because conducting typically meant that Bach, say, was playing violin and uh, would indicate with head movements and with his bow, now let's all come in together. Baroque music is more rhythmically predictable than late Romantic music, but nevertheless, it required a guide so that when there were shifts in tempo or when phrases needed to be shaped, uh, somebody was there, somebody who understood the music, often the composer, was there to give that direction. Now, there were lots of methods. Uh, sometimes the person in question would be conducting from the harpsichord 
or later from the piano. Sometimes they would be holding a rolled up piece of music in their hand and use that to just sort of indicate tempo. But a very popular means of conducting in that era was the, the staff or stick and they would beat the ground in tempo. Now, obviously not so loudly that the, <laughs> the percussion of this drowned out the piece, but uh, this was in favor until Jean-Baptiste Lully hit himself on the foot, and um, yeah, he, he died of complications from gangrene because of <laughs> impaling his foot with his conducting staff. So the conducting world decided it would be safer not to rely so heavily on the stick. But it took a long time for people to come to the idea of a small wooden baton held in the hand. And uh, that really was early, mid to early 19th century. Um, so there were, as I say, many composers who did conduct. You know, Mozart would conduct his operas from the harpsichord. And, and Beethoven, notoriously, would conduct so badly because he couldn't hear anything that he would have somebody standing beside him um, telegraphing to the orchestra what Beethoven really intended. And uh, there's even a movie, I can't remember the name of it, but I'm sure some of you have seen it. What was that called when the, the um, yeah. all right. I don't know what that was. But uh, famously in the Ninth Symphony, um, there was one of the violinists who came out of the orchestra and was basically Beethoven's spokesperson because Beethoven was just sort of doing this and, and uh, this person was showing the orchestra when they should actually play. And, and there is a film that was made about 30 years ago. So what then happened is that orchestras grew in size, but more importantly, music itself changed. And as music changed, it necessitated this interpretive personality who is not him or herself playing an instrument because music became even more fluid. Now, unfortunately, none of us really know from a recording what Handel or Bach sounded like at the time they wrote their music. It could be that they exercised a good deal of freedom, and when we read works written in the early part of the um, 18th century, it sounds like there really was a certain amount of freedom. But usually this freedom was given to a soloist. When a whole group of people has to do something that sounds free and do it exactly the same way, uh, that requires the intervention of another person. Uh, and so whether it's symphonic, uh, where there's always slight fluctuation, or operatic, where there is enormous fluctuation, um, the conductor is essential to the proceedings. At the same time, you all know there are conductorless orchestras, and they perform at an exceedingly high level. What's really happening in a conductorless orchestra is several of the section leaders are all functioning as conductors. So what, what that really means is orchestra without a single conductor. Now, why uh, that phenomenon has come into existence is a complex question, but I think that uh, because people know 200 years ago it was managed, why shouldn't we manage it now? Well, the challenge is that the standard of playing 200 years ago to us today would sound like a bad junior high school orchestra. And that um, what composers longed for was two people who could sit together and play the same thing basically with the right notes and the right rhythm. Whereas now, we have hundreds of orchestras around the world that can play at such a high standard uh, certainly compared to anything that, that went on you know, in previous centuries, that um, we're, we're, we're spoiled. 
And that's been reinforced by recordings because since we can hear recordings of almost any piece being played seemingly to perfection, uh, we demand that when we go out and hear an orchestra. Now, that's uh, a very high bar for orchestras to reach because, uh, you know, the Berlin Philharmonic has a famous recording of some piece by Richard Strauss and, and the, the, I don't know, the Portala Symphony goes to play it. And it's not so easy to make it sound like that without 24 rehearsals. And um, it, that's costly. So somebody recently said, you know, the conductor has gone from being a sort of priest of music who has uh, many, many hours to bring each orchestral musician around to an agreement about how this work is going to be phrased and what it means. And uh, now it's how in the least amount of time can you get 80 professional people pretty much doing the same thing at the same time because there isn't the money to have, you know, well, I, I was once offered something in, in uh, Sicily and it was 12 weeks of rehearsal period or something like that to do Dear Rosenkavalier. Nobody has 12 weeks to prepare one opera, you know, unless you're, you're living there. Um, so conducting has changed uh, significantly in the last 50 years. You probably know that Arturo Toscanini, although revered as one of the great legendary conductors of all times, had no problem screaming at his orchestras. And uh, if, you, if you want, you can go on YouTube and listen to him swearing in Italian and English and telling them that they're terrible and stupid. And, uh, and then he says, and now make beautiful singing. <laughs> okay, maestro, we'll do it. So uh, that would today be completely impossible. You know, in, in 10 seconds, the orchestra union manager would have placed the phone call and uh, somebody would be coming with handcuffs and Toscanini would be <laughs> leaving the stage. So uh, conducting is now a much more collaborative business than, than it was. But um, let's go back again. After the time of Mozart and Beethoven, uh, who weren't really conducting so much as they were just giving tempo indications. Uh, we have, in the 19th century, the rise of what are the precursors of modern conducting. We have Hector Berlioz, who, although he was not terribly proficient on any instrument except the guitar, uh, taught himself to conduct. And he taught himself to conduct because nobody could conduct his compositions to his satisfaction. Now, Berlioz wrote gigantic works, the likes of which had never been heard. And this early romantic composer was very influential. But even to um, other contemporary musicians, they found his conducting very inspiring because he was able to do more than merely show time. He was able to show emotion in his conducting. Now, again, we have no records. I'm sure that Bach and other composers, when they conducted, showed emotion. But Berlioz was doing this in a systematic way so that the speed of his upbeat and even the shape of his upbeat indicated what the quality of the music that was about to come out would be. Not just if it was loud or soft, but was it tender, was it sad, was it triumphant, was it uh, aggressive? So um, Berlioz did two things for the orchestra. He, he developed a, a new way of conducting, and he developed a new way of writing for the orchestra. In fact, his treatise on 
instrumentation is still read almost 200 years later and, and taken very seriously. After Berlioz, uh, Felix Mendelssohn was an incredible conductor and also an incredible uh, reviver of works that had been lost. Bach's St. Matthew Passion would be completely unknown today if Mendelssohn had not uh, found it and revived it and performed it to great acclaim. Mendelssohn thought this was tremendously funny because obviously this is a Christian passion, and he said, and it took a non-practicing Jew to bring this to, <laughs> to light. So Mendelssohn had a huge success, not only with that work of Bach's, but other large works of, of Bach. And um, he, he established the Gewandhaus Orchestra, and, and this still is an important orchestra. Um, Mendelssohn, too, was able to convey more than mere tempo. So this became a much higher standard, and the standard of playing rose as the technical demands of what composers were writing became more and more challenging. Now we have uh, the middle of the, the 19th century, and uh, composers like Spohr and Spontini and um, Weber, all were very accomplished conductors. And then later you even have like Artur Nikisch. Now Nikisch was a Hungarian and is the first conductor of whom we have reliable video. Nikisch uh, was conducting, of course, late romantic works and somehow in this video, even though there's no sound, you can see the fluidity of his beating and how he can use his eyes to indicate not just it's time for you to play, but in what way you should play. So this is a whole new world for conducting. And after that, uh, it grows exponentially because uh, in the late 19th century, many conductors, including Toscanini or Born, most of them apprentice playing in orchestras when they're teenagers, become conductors in opera houses in their young 20s, get a job as the assistant conductor somewhere in their mid-20s, and before they're 30, they are the musique director of uh, some big, important European opera house. This pattern repeats itself over and over and over. And one of the great things about almost all conductors is they seem to live to 80, 90. <laughs> they just keep on going. Um, all those great romantic composers, you know, died before they were 40, and, and the conductors were just getting going. So um, the, the only exceptions I can think of are like Thomas Skippers and, and um, Istvan Kertesz, who both had unfortunate early deaths. But, but in, by and large, conductors have, have very long lives. I can imagine why, because the uh, fact that they're using themselves as an instrument, and, and uh, when you're conducting well, you feel like you're getting positive feedback from, from hundreds of people, you know, from everybody that's playing, everybody that's on stage, everybody that's in the audience. And uh, unlike some of the things you have to do when you're an instrumentalist, it's, it's fairly natural in terms of the physical movements involved. Playing instruments can be, can be quite crippling to the body. You know, it sounds so beautiful, but those poor uh, violinists with their heads twisted around all the time, you know, it's tough. Now, conducting often is misprized. Um, my grandfather was so disappointed when I sort of shifted from being a pianist to a conductor because he said, you know, now you're not doing anything. <laughs> and 
I have tried with many people to explain what in fact we are doing. Um, imagine, if you will, that you are the, the um, United Church Philharmonic, and um, we, we are all going to perform um, Happy Birthday together, okay? Now, I'll, I'll give you a note, and first we'll all agree what that note is. Ha! Everybody good on that? Okay. So, here we go. And without us having a long discussion, you all knew what to do. The conductor is dealing with 40, 60, 80 people, all of whom are highly accomplished musicians. So they all have strong opinions about how to play the music in front of them, but they don't all have the same opinion. So even if they dislike the conductor, which is often the case, they all grudgingly agree that it is better to follow one person's vision than to try to reach compromise with 60 people doing 60 different things. It's easy to think, oh, but the music is all written on paper. How can they disagree? The notes and the rhythms are all there. Well, every note has 10 different ways that it can be interpreted. And maybe eight of them are not good, but two of them probably are good. And so as soon as there's choice, there needs to be somebody making that choice. Uh, a note on a page doesn't always have exactly the same length as we just saw in Happy Birthday, right? And in more sophisticated music, this expands. So uh, if we're playing Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, which I bet many of you know, Is that familiar? Yeah, okay. So I've got all those cellos, right? They take it first. And if they are playing, I already made several choices. They might have played, they could make it more bouncy. Every note has to be articulated in a specific way. So the conductor probably, either himself or with the help of a concertmaster, first violinist, writes in bowings to make it clearer uh, what articulations are going to be used in this particular performance. And all those choices have to be made anytime we do a performance of anything. Or you can take the music that already exists if it's marked and um, take the markings that are in it and just change what you need to change. Uh, but if you give an orchestra a set of blank parts and um, just say play, it will be cacophonous, uh, even though it will be recognizable as a Schubert symphony. It wouldn't be uh, what you're all used to hearing, which is sophisticated, phrased music where all the articulations are the same. If you ever watch carefully, and I'm sure you have, you'll see that in a violin section or a viola section or a cello section, they're all changing their bows at the same moment. That is not happening by accident. Somebody has carefully gone through every single bar of their parts and written in, you're going to play down, down, up, down, down, up, up, down, 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 up, 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 down, up, you know. And so uh, the musicians all agree they're going to do this together. Even that is not enough. The concertmaster, sitting here to the left of the conductor, will stand up and say, now, 
I know you're all doing down, down, but I need you on the second down to get to the tip and on that up only to get to the middle. And so even how far you go on the bow is something that's agreed upon by all the musicians. Why? Because if one person is using a whole bow to play a note and another person is just using an inch, those two notes, although they're the same note, will sound totally different. So all of these details have to be thought through and attended to. Now, you don't make the decisions based on, I've got to decide something, so I'll just you know, choose the middle of the bow. It all has to do with how you conceive a work of music and what you want to come through that work of music. The conductor is the person who is responsible for that. And if you hear a wonderful, successful performance, the orchestra will say, yeah, we didn't have to watch him too much, but we, <laughs> you know, everybody in the orchestra wants to give a great performance. And um, the conductor is the person who is responsible for having that happen. And if it doesn't happen, that's also the conductor's responsibility. When you have an opera, uh, it's an even more complex situation because you're telling a story through characters and a chorus uh, and the orchestra. And um, all of the soloists, the vocal soloists, come in having usually sung these roles before. So they need to be able to uh, sing the way that's comfortable for them. And of course, there are thousands of stories uh, of conductors and singers coming to blows because the conductor feels it should be this fast and the singer needs that much time or, or the opposite or whatever. Um, there was a great conductor named Hans von Bülow, who was the conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic for many years, one of the greatest orchestras ever. And uh, Hans von Bülow unfortunately had a sharp tongue that he could not keep from using all the time. And he would say to a trombonist, your tone sounds like roast beef gravy going through a sewer. <laughs> so one time he was, he was conducting, um, well, he was conducting the premiere of Tristan and Isolde, actually. And um, he said to the tenor, you are not a singer, you are a disease. And <laughs> he was kicked out of the opera house. So Hans von Bülow um, was, was amazing in his rehearsal technique and his his uh, preparation of things, and he had a, a great concept of works, but he, he never achieved the, the great fame that he might have if he had been able to be a little more diplomatic in his dealings with singers. Um, Bülow married Wagner's, uh, sorry, married Liszt's daughter, Cosima, and then um, Wagner stole Cosima away from him, um, and so, Von Bülow had no more interest in Wagner as a person, but he championed Wagner's music for the rest of his life and, and was one of the greatest conductors of the Wagner operas. Now, I know all of you hearing this are eager to conduct yourselves, so I propose that you all stand for a moment, several moments. There are basic conducting patterns. If you see uh, a famous conductor, you probably won't see any of those patterns because once learned, they can be, they can be discarded. But um, if, you, if you place your right hand somewhere a little bit out to the right and above your head and you go down and you try not to hit anybody and then just gently to your left a little bit and then gently to your right and then back up. That is one of the fundamental conducting patterns. We're gonna repeat it. One, two, three, 
four, down, left, right, and up. If you are left-handed, you still do exactly the same thing. <laughs> the, the conductor does not get to choose which, which hand they use. But um, the left hand can also be used, and is often used, uh, more and more in recent years. Richard Strauss, who was a great conductor, said the proper place for the left hand is in the pocket. <laughs> but uh, times have changed, and now we use both hands. Typically, the right hand is indicating tempo, and the left hand is indicating expression. Is it smooth? Is it staccato? Is it uh, you know, elevated? Whatever. Uh, so now let's do this again. Down and left and right and up. All right, now, let's see. Um, we'll, we'll create the overture to Die Meistersinger, okay? <laughs> I just need from everybody, start with your right hand out to your right, and the first thing you're going to do is do an upbeat. And as you do, now we're going to do it again. As you do that upbeat, you're going to inhale. So that naturally, as you exhale, the downbeat happens and the orchestra comes in. Bum, 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 bum. Okay, here we go. One, okay, you are in position. One, two, three. So, <laughs> I lost a few. The, the tempo would be something like one, two, three. Dum, pom, pom, pom. Bum 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 bee bum 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 dee bum 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 bee. You can use a smaller space. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, everybody with their right hand out to the right. One, two, three. Now we're getting it, yes, bravo. All right, so there are, of course, other time signatures in music besides 4-4. 3-4 four, four. Uh, four happens just as frequently, and that is if you take your hand above your head or at your nose is fine, you're going to go down, right, up, and you'll return to the place where you began. One, two, three. Right? Down, right, and up. Now, um, we'll, we'll play a, a, a Johann Strauss waltz, all right? Um, uh, again, you're going to start out here to the right and give an upbeat to that falling downbeat, all right? So here you go. You're out here, and we'll do the Blue Danube together with no rubato. One, <laughs> one two, three. Down, out, up, down. Down, down. Lovely. Now imagine, here you can all sit down, that was beautiful, that was lovely. <laughs> okay, so if you've Heard the Blue Danube, you know that in fact 
one, two, and three don't all have the exact same length. So you would have to really do something like this. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, three, one, three, one, two, three, one, and then pretty soon, yumpa, da dee dee dee, right? So the allowing uh, different beats to have different lengths is a, another good reason to have a conductor. Of course, in Vienna, uh, if a conductor is conducting Johann Strauss, they can do whatever they want, and the orchestra is just doing it beautifully <laughs> without. <laughs> we went to hear Placido Domingo sing on New Year's Eve in the Vienna Staatsoper in Die Fledermaus. Uh, sorry, he wasn't singing, he was conducting. And as you know, Placido Domingo is a great conductor. He, he really uh, is taken seriously by the conducting world. He's not just a famous great tenor who happens to kind of be able to conduct. But um, we got to the point in the second act where they start the big famous ensemble and Domingo gave a beat and gave a downbeat and there was dead silence. And the concertmaster looked around at all of them and said, now we'll do it. <laughs> But most of the time, the conductor actually is running the show. And um, let's, let's, in a very small area, do our Blue Danube and uh, allow yourselves to do the following. Now, now they really get going right. Then ba 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 So you see now why you have a basic pattern but you use it to move away from it. And if it gets going really fast, instead of putting in the second and third beats, you just give the down beats, yum, bum, 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 but when it's slow, so you can control not only the speed, but how much legato and influence the orchestra's phrasing. Now, the orchestra players, as I said, are highly skilled professionals. They are not consciously watching and if you've watched the symphony orchestra you, you, they're not like that right they're they're seemingly looking down and somehow there's a tiny window before what they know is important information when they look up <laughs> and that is enough if you miss their window you miss your chance so when you work with a new orchestra you quickly figure out which players look up a bar before which players look up two bars before and which players give you just the last split second in, in which to give them information. So you have to reach a maximum number of these players. And of course, when their phrase is over, they're waiting for a look, even though they're not conscious of it, where you say, that was great, and then you go on. <laughs> so there are lots of non-musical factors involved in conducting. There are psychological factors, and you're essentially being the, the, the creator, the director, the editor, everything all at once. And um, being alert that if something goes amiss somewhere, you can't fix everything. It's like a, a, an ocean liner. You know, if, if you want to make it move off course a little bit, you can't just turn it around. Uh, so you quickly assess um, 
what is the most economical way to bring everything back into perfect unity and harmony uh, without disrupting anybody. Um, and, and sometimes those solutions are very elegant and sometimes they're more challenging. But that's constantly going on. Um, when you're conducting a piece, whether it's a symphony or an opera, you suddenly find sometimes you're in this groove where everything is going incredibly. You're not having to show single beats, you're just molding shapes and everybody's going with you. And that can last for a long time, but inevitably <laughs> something happens. <laughs> and, and at the moment that something happens, it may be imperceptible to the audience, but you want to take care of it quickly enough so that it remains imperceptible <laughs> to the audience. Otherwise, uh, pretty soon things, you know, the music is going on, but the, the magic of it uh, has, has stopped. And you want to get everybody back to that spot. Sometimes it's simply a matter of physical endurance. Um, there are acts of operas that can last 100 minutes. And you expect the players, especially the violins who are playing hard music all the time, to keep playing and um, never lose their concentration. Well, that doesn't really happen. You know, it's, it's a wave that goes up and down, and you have to ride it uh, and allow people to have moments when they're just playing correctly but without great inspiration. And then when it's important, come back to them and say, okay, now's the time, you know, and you, you get their attention. Um, so one thing I have learned is that in conducting, there's a lot of things that you do, but figuring out uh, what not to do is also very important. And uh, getting out of players' ways so that when it's something beautiful they have to play, they don't feel you're in their face holding them by the throat um, is very important because then suddenly beautiful lyrical playing emerges and you have to know just when to get back in with them and help them through to the next thing. Uh, otherwise, it can become a little flabby and chaotic. So it's, it's uh, constantly interesting, and you're constantly getting feedback, biofeedback, as it were, from, from the group that you're um, conducting. Now, I think if we um, think of that Schubert symphony again, it would be useful to imagine um, an, an excellent cello section, right? Uh, actually, first we should sing. We should all sing the melody together, the, the main tune to the first movement of the unfinished symphony. Is this familiar? Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Yeah, some of you won that audition. Um, so when, when there's a, a note that's carrying over, the little movement that the conductor makes says, and now it's time to move. Ti-da. Of course, I'm not distorting it like that, but uh, the players are watching for that. They're not watching for D. They know about that. If I made that third movement uh, more high, more sharp, I'd get that eighth note at the end of the bar much louder. They'd play which I don't want, but uh, that's the kind of physical gesture that results in a musical gesture. And uh, part of conducting is trying to convey musical gestures through physical gestures so that a maximum number of the players, without even having to think about it, uh, intuitively understand what you want and, and execute it. All right, so let's, let's sing it again. One, two. 
Well, lovely, yeah. Okay, so you already shaped a beautiful phrase from a Schubert symphony, and uh, we actually did not do it strictly in rhythm, right? We had a little bit of rubato. As the 19th century goes on, rubato gets more and more um, extreme, and of course, in opera, rubato becomes more and more extreme. Um, imagine... Um, uh, do, you, do you know Nessun Dorma? He sings. Uh, of course, the better the tenor is and the more he's in good voice, the more time he's going to take with every note where it feels good. So here we are, uh, just sing it on la, 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 la. You're, you're all Pavarotti right now. Here we go to la 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 dictating that to the singer. I hear the singer's breath and musical impulses, and I communicate those to the orchestra so that all of us are doing exactly the same thing at the same time, and it sounds like that's just inevitable and that's the way it's meant to be. It isn't always that way, but that is the plan. Uh, I had the wonderful opportunity, gosh, almost 20 years ago now, to conduct a Bulgarian orchestra and orchestra and opera company. And we traveled all over Europe and then we traveled all over the United States with about six or seven Italian operas in repertory. And one of them was uh, Turandot. So <laughs> the tenor who described himself as Bulgaria's second best tenor and there was no first best tenor, uh, <laughs> really loved to stay longer and longer on those notes. And his objective was to get not one, but two encores of Nessun Dorma. <laughs> Perhaps not the highest artistic aim, but nevertheless, that is what he strove for. And we finally achieved that on the 43rd performance of our tour. <laughs> in Brooklyn, um, where <laughs> he got to perform Nessun Dorma three times in a row uh, with the chorus behind him singing lustily out, you know. Uh, and so each time we would do it, we would stretch those long notes a little more. And, and you can hear in a voice when it gets to the point where it's just about to go over the crest, and that's the moment where you take everybody on. And it's viscerally very thrilling, and it is why of all classical music, romantic music has the, the widest audience because however great Bach and Mozart may be, uh, there's greater visceral thrill in romantic music performed at its best, uh, I think. That's why, it's probably that way. The Bulgarians taught me a lot because they had never uh, encountered a musician's union and at the first rehearsal, uh, I finished and set down my baton at exactly two and a half hours, as I've always been trained to do. And nobody moved. They were just like you. They were just sitting there. A and I said, uh, what, what is going on? And they said, we stay. We make really good. <laughs> so we stayed another hour and a half, and we made really good. 
And I was astounded because, you know, in, in the United States you have great players, and at two and a half hours the clock ticks and, and they are out of the room. So in Bulgaria, where players maybe get $30 a month, um, they know that if they're not playing better than somebody else, that that somebody else will be sitting in their chair tomorrow. So it was a whole different world. It was probably like American orchestras, you know, when Toscanini was the conductor of the NBC Symphony and he could make them stay till midnight and scream at them. And uh, I'm not sure it really made things better, but that was just his way that he had learned when he was uh, a cellist in Verdi's orchestra for Otello. Uh, Toscanini was 19 and he was in the pit with, with Verdi conducting. And um, he, he uh, later had the opportunity, they were on tour in, in South America and he was the assistant chorus master. And the conductor got into a fight with the singer, I believe, again, um, was out on his ear and uh, they couldn't find somebody to conduct the piece and Toscanini said, well, I know it. So he got up in front of the orchestra in the performance and, uh, in, in Rio and conducted all of Aida from memory from beginning to end and uh, soon became the head conductor of that orchestra. You know, there, there are several legendary stories like that. I'm sure you know that Leonard Bernstein at 25 was uh, an assistant conductor at the New York Philharmonic and Bruno Walter got sick. This is like 1943. And, um, Bruno Walter was conducting this program of Schumann, Manfred Overture, and uh, 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 Richard Strauss, Don Quixote, and um, Meisterzinger Overture, and a uh, violin concerto by Miklos Rosa. So a hard program. And um, uh, Bruno Walter had a flu that morning. Bernstein went over to ask him how he did a couple things and conducted a concert that afternoon and you know, shot on to be the, the principal conductor of the New York Philharmonic for many years. So when you, when you know the right stuff and you're in the right place at the right time, it's a good thing. Uh, let's take a break, and then oh, when we come back, we'll, um, we'll see any, anybody who wants to do some conducting, we'll, uh, we'll do it one-on-one -on -one instead, of, instead of en masse. All right, I'll see you in 15 minutes. Thank you. I love taking these breaks because that's when people ask me, uh, the things that I should have talked about that I forgot to talk about. So I'll try to remember a lot of them, but if I forget, just remind me. Now, uh, one of the questions was, how does a conductor convey intensity? And in what way can you regulate the amount of energy and the amount of volume that the orchestra produces? So um, I, I, would you be my guinea pig, please? Yes. Sure. All right. Now we're going to begin Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. Which, no it's pressure. Okay. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> Good. You, you stand over there so I can see you. All right. So Beethoven's Eroica Symphony starts with two big chords in E flat major, and they're just bump, bump, and then the melody begins. Okay? So here we go. Me? You. <laughs> So now that's a, he got the bum bum right no problem now I forgot it was a three. no it was great the, the only thing the only thing that makes me easier to conduct than a symphony orchestra is I play at the same time as myself so when you are conducting a large symphony and they all have to go bum 
bump at the same time, you just have to be uh, more intense, uh, more forceful. The movement has to be that kind of a movement. You, if you go, you'll get a sound, but it will be a more gentle, they'll play. Right, which is also beautiful, but that's not the opening of the, the symphony that you're looking for. Now, um, let's see, what's something else that starts that way? Um, <laughs> Leroy. Where the, where the real intensity is, is not in that. It's in the preparation. You notice before he did that. What it's you no, right. It's not the moment when your hand it's, hits it's, the it's bottom. Preparation for it. Because all if, if all of you would indulge me and without trying to sing in pitch, go bum, bum. Okay, here we go. No, here we go. I mean, and. Bum. Bum. Right. And you did it at the same time. But exactly as Leroy said, the, the breath and the intake of breath and the preparation, when it's released is when you or all the orchestra players will play bum. And after those two chords, everything changes. So we have bum, bum. Uh, the chords stand in stark contrast to the kind of emotion that Beethoven produces uh, immediately afterwards. Now, sometimes um, music is written in such a way that chords emerge suddenly. Instead of being uh, an organic, smooth transition, the composer intentionally shocks us. Um, a little marriage of Figaro, dee 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 ba da da dee dee dee, in a, in a sort of a small two. No pressure, right? <laughs> right? And instinctively, he knew it was going to get suddenly loud, so his left hand came up. And we do all those things because it lets the orchestra know, oh, something different is happening. So they're, they're just playing dee dee dum ba da da dee dee dum ba da dum bum bum ba bum without a movement from the conductor, they might play a little louder, but they don't have the confidence to suddenly disrupt that musical line as the composer wants them to uh, with an aggressive sound because they're just into the beauty of playing that, that smooth line. So let's do the whole uh, Marriage of Figaro overture. <laughs> well, maybe we'll do just a little bit of it. It's in D major. Yeah, yeah. It is. But one of the, alas, one of the things we cannot control as conductors is the pitches that the orchestra plays. <laughs> so, you know, you can, you can do anything with articulation, with volume, with mood, um, but if somebody's not playing the right note, you know, <laughs> pretty much, you, you have to rely on the players for having gotten their instruments in tune yeah. before, the <laughs> before they start the concert. All right, here we are. We're in D major. Sorry. <laughs> Give me an upbeat again. Yeah, there you go. Bravo, bravo. Okay. I confess, I didn't pick a random member of the audience. I, I, know, I know that he knows his opera. Now, the other night, we had our performance Santa Fe 
uh, gala, our big fundraising event, and we had an auction, and one of the items on the auction block was conducting our real orchestra at our New Year's Eve concert for a few minutes. And the winner of that item is none other than our own Yoko Arthur. So, all of you should get tickets to come here, Yoko, on New Year's Eve, conduct a little Wagner before we do Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. <laughs> so another question somebody asked is about a word that I used, I just threw off. I said, in the late 19th century, romantic music has a lot of rubato. I know some of you know what that means, but I'm going to just explain it briefly. No music is exactly mathematical. Even if we tried to do it, it wouldn't happen, and we don't really want that anyway. Always, even when uh, rhythm and tempo are steady, there are certain inflections that, that come as part of the music because music is connected to our bodies and our breath and movement, and movement happens in curves. So phrases happen in curves. And even though you might say, um, is a steady tempo. It's probably not exactly steady. If it were exactly steady, it would sound like this. It's hard to do, but. Uh, instead of And of course, as music uh, went forward in time and harmonies became more complex. Uh, composers imagined that the interpreters, the, the instrumentalists and the conductors who played their works, would treat new harmonies like a new color, like a new country, you know, that you come into and things are completely different. So uh, by the time 40, 60 years after that, uh, say Frédéric Chopin is writing, uh, he expects the performer to take No, no two eighth notes are the same. I mean, uh, the stylistically correct interpretation by the time we reach the mid-19th century is that although the differences are very subtle, they're constantly shifting in this kind of ongoing alchemical process. If you hear uh, even a good voice simulation computer program, you know it still sounds like uh, the aliens in old movies, you know. Uh, may I have your name and was. So uh, music that sounds like that, uh, I heard somebody say the word music box, it sounds, it sounds like something mechanical. But um, uh, as, as a conductor, our, our privilege is to bring music to life. So rubato, uh, which is Italian for stealing, something that is stolen, is stealing a little bit from one beat and giving it to another beat so that uh, we're not gradually getting slower and slower or gradually getting faster and faster, but can still give shape to a musical phrase uh, without changing the fundamental tempo. Um, so Schubert.
Here it is with no rubato at all. If you're, if you're a 10 year old did that, you'd feel pretty good about it. But by the time you're paying money to go to hear a famous concert pianist in a hall, you want to hear something that's a little bit more like that. And the thing that dictates rubato, because it's not arbitrary, is almost always harmonic movement. And what is harmonic movement? So, Almost all of the music we all listen to is still based on traditional Western harmony, in which there is a key, or several keys perhaps, and the distance we travel from those keys dictates the amount of time it takes for the human brain to process in a comfortable way what has just happened. This stands in stark contrast to some contemporary music where the purpose of the music is actually to be rhythmically driven in a certain way. Uh, in his famous passage in Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, nobody wants the orchestra to be employing rubato when they play. Right? That's the, the, the whole um, savagery of this musical passage is that the same unusual chord, E flat 7 plus E major, is repeated endlessly and relentlessly with rhythmic accents at unusual places. So as music evolves, so of course does the way we interpret music. And it's inappropriate to take the style of romantic music and impose it on Baroque music or, or classical music, classical, you know, Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, classical. And it's inappropriate to take uh, the style of romantic music and impose it on contemporary music, or vice versa. So uh, as a conductor, one of the things we do is convince everybody, mostly with movement rather than talking, um, that a particular stylistic way of treating a piece of music serves that music uh, in the best possible way. Again, yes, sir? rubato to sound as though you were improvising. And Chopin, for example, who wrote about rubato and even let his left hand play in one rhythm while his right hand played in another. I wish we had recordings of Frederick Chopin because everybody who were his contemporaries said he was the great pianist. You know, he and Liszt uh, were the two supreme pianists of, of that time, but uh, Liszt's was more about extraordinary virtuosity and technical ability, and Chopin's was more about being able to create, uh, with very economical means, extreme emotion. Um, and, and of course, at ideally, both composers had both. But uh, Chopin wrote down pieces that he improvised. Even the big Chopin pieces that you know uh, were originally improvisations, and he had a friend named um, Fontana, who somehow had the memory that he could write down everything Chopin had just played, uh, and Chopin would go back and change a few things, but usually he would be dissatisfied and go back to what he'd improvised in the first place. That even the big sprawling works like the ballades apparently were improvised. 
and uh, Chopin's, you know, some people have minds like that. Uh, Chopin's present to, to Fontana was that he wrote this piece called The Fantasy Impromptu, uh, which was, of course, a complete improvisation, and um, dedicated it to, to Fontana. So improvisation didn't begin with jazz. You know, uh, players have been improvising for centuries. However, by the time we reach an orchestra concert, uh, there's not a lot of improvisa literal improvisation going on. The orchestra has their parts on stands in front of them, and they are playing what's there. However, your comment is great, because as a conductor, my job is to make that music sound like it's alive, uh, not that it's the mere repetition of a clever set of notes set down by a great composer. So rubato is very much one of the ways that that music sounds like it's alive. It sounds that way because rubato imitates the way we actually speak. Uh, we, we pause sometimes, we speak faster sometimes, we get excited and then we calm down. And all of this is mirrored in music. No surprise. In fact, we don't even know which came first in human evolution. Presumably they evolved concurrently and influenced one another. But uh, the use of nonverbal sounds as a mean of communication probably preceded uh, vocabulary. So these are tied together and even though an audience is just enjoying a piece of music and not consciously registering every time the conductor uses a little rubato and stretches a phrase. Uh, unconsciously, everybody is registering it completely. And the difference between a performance where you go, that was nice, and a performance where you're so excited and it just really spoke to you is that. Uh, is the, the good, uh, tasteful, stylistic use of rubato and other musical gestures, finding the right gesture at the right time, and as the conductor, finding the right physical gesture to convey that to the orchestra so that it happens. Now, that being said, a lot of the time, like I said before, our job is to know when to get out of the way. And if a marvelous player is starting a solo, it's not smart for me to show them exactly how I would do it if they can do a, a wonderful job themselves. So knowing your players, of course, is a prerequisite to this. You can't walk into a strange orchestra and uh, achieve some of the things you can achieve once you know an orchestra. In other words, there are conductors who travel around the world and they're seeing a new orchestra very frequently and they have to just lay things down clearly and it will go well. But there are conductors who establish long-term relationships with particular orchestras. Think Kusevitsky and the Boston Symphony, Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic, Karyon and the Berlin Philharmonic. And uh, these conductors know what each player is capable of and know just how much freedom to, to give them. And, and those are the truly great orchestral performances. Conducting, after all, is all about communication. And we all know that there are situations when we have to really state something in a powerful way to, to be heard and understood. And other times when we might not have to say anything at all and we're very clearly understood um, through a small gesture, through an intake of breath. Uh, and, and all of that plays part of conducting, too. Um, yes, Julie.
special guest star soloist. soloist do they come to you and say well I'm going to be doing it like this or do you just hang back and wait for them to do their magic I, I hang back and wait for them to do their magic um, <laughs> these concerts at the Lenzik over the last nine years have been uh, a wonderful experience because uh, my I've conducted hundreds of operas in lots of opera houses and um, in those situations of course the singer is the soloist and they're doing their magic but with the orchestral concerto repertoire, the orchestra knows this repertoire a lot better. Um, and that works to our advantage because um, unless an orchestra is trained as an opera orchestra and plays operas all year round, um, the much greater freedom of opera repertoire can be, can be confusing to them at first. But the symphonic repertoire of somebody, if, if Vadim Glusman gets up and he's playing the Bruch Concerto, uh, and I can tell he's about to do some magical, super soft, beautiful tone, and he wants extra time, and I l let the orchestra hover in midair, and I don't give them anything, so they're not going to do anything until I finally release it, and I release it gently so they come on to the next chord very softly. Uh, and, and he looks over at me like, yes, good job, he's good job. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you do, you do let him do it. And, and that's the way I think real music making happens. Uh, somebody was asking about chamber music in the break. In chamber music, you can see things happen that you can't imagine how the players achieve them. Uh, a couple times we've had the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Chamber Ensemble here. Eight players. And they're all sitting there perfectly still, and suddenly one of them starts to play, and all eight of them at the same millisecond start to play at the same dynamic, in the same part of their bow. It's, it's unbelievable. But now, obviously, they've started that piece together thousands of times. But uh, the level of communication is on such a high uh, plane that one tiny breath or movement is enough for them all to go, and it, it may be and they're still all perfect. Now, as a conductor, I hope to always get that too, but there are tricks. If I know that there's a very challenging opening and I want everybody in the orchestra to have the exact same feeling of rhythmic pulse, instead of a single upbeat, I might be setting that up so by the time they come in, everybody has unconsciously assimilated exactly the same tempo. Conducting isn't the same if you have a different group. Uh, the job of, say, a youth symphony conductor is very different from the job of Simon Rattle standing in front of the Berlin Philharmonic. So with a youth symphony, uh, your job is really to teach. It's to inspire, but it's also to be very clear and show these young musicians who are at quite a wide variety of levels uh, that there's always a clear time to come in, Tom, if you conducted the Berlin Philharmonic the way you conducted a youth orchestra, they'd feel very offended, to say the least. And uh, it's important that the level of music making you're inviting your players to participate in is appropriate to the group. Choral conducting is a completely different phenomenon because uh, the singers respond to different kinds of movement. Um, the precision required on a string instrument is more, it's more exact, and so 
most conductors use a baton because a string player can watch the tip of that baton and there's an exact moment in space where that click happens and they know that's when the bow moves on the string. Uh, with singers, because there's breath and it's not as precise, you'll see many more conductors just use their hands without the aid of a baton. Of course, there are orchestral conductors who've never used a baton, like Kurt Mazur and Leopold Stokowski for a while, and um, Ormandy for a while didn't use a baton. So some great conductors. <laughs> and then there's uh, Valery Gergiev, who now conducts with a toothpick. I'm not kidding. <laughs> if you don't believe me, go on YouTube, and you will see this, this Russian you know, crazy man who looks like he's out of some Gogol novel. Uh, his face is red and his hair is all over the place. He's one of the most brilliant conductors who's ever lived. And he'll lift his toothpick and he'll look at, you know, the Vienna Philharmonic or the St. Petersburg or whoever, and he'll go... And they'll all start to play perfectly together. And I was like, how did that happen? So there are conductors who feel that it's important to actually show the information, and there are other conductors who, if the ensemble is sophisticated enough, just show the energy that they want to be coming out of the music. Uh, you've maybe heard the name Wilhelm Furtwängler. Now, Furtwängler never gave a beat in his life. He just showed the sort of aesthetic aura that surrounded the music. And the players sort of went, okay, boom. And, you know, because it was one of the world's great, he was, he was the music director of the Berlin Philharmonic for, I don't know, 20 years. And, um, this, this magic worked, and, and if you watch them talk about him, you can tell I am the biggest YouTube junkie in the world, right? I've, I've, heard, I've heard all the members of the Berlin Philharmonic from years and years ago talking about Furtwängler, and um, they'll say, oh, his imagination of the color of tone was so great, and when he was doing this, I could see it was just going to, and so they'd all just look at each other, and boom, they'd play in that mood. Now, if Furt Wengler had been conducting a youth orchestra, that would not have been a successful <laughs> endeavor. All right? So it really matters where you are. Uh, Simon Rattle, who has been now since, I guess, 2006 or 7, the, the music director of the Berlin Philharmonic and is stepping down in 2018 uh, to go back to England. Um, boy, I sure lost what I was going to say about him. Maybe you want to take his place. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I, I just remember him saying that when he, he came in front of this group of players, you know, the Berlin Philharmonic, is, oh, I know what I was going to say. He, he became famous because he took a very middling orchestra, the City of Birmingham Orchestra, and transformed it uh, from an adequate orchestra into a great world-class orchestra. Now, that takes real skill. Uh, obviously, he nurtured every player in that orchestra, both individually and collectively, so that he was worthy of conducting, say, the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, these people who can really train an orchestra are, are amazing. And there are also people who, who can really um, train conductors. Uh, they aren't necessarily the greatest conductors themselves, but uh, Jorma Panula, who is in Finland, uh, is this sort of guru, and conductors go to him to, to learn uh, how, to, how to conduct. And um, he's, I don't know, I, I've, he's done some public concerts, but he himself is not a great conductor. Uh, he has a whole line of famous conductors who have come out of his studio. So it's a fascinating uh, 
blend of musical uh, absorption and personality. Um, I think of John Crosby, whom I, I loved, actually. Uh, he had a genius that was so widespread that he could keep the entire balance sheet of the Santa Fe Opera in his head. He could design the parking lot so the water ran off where he wanted, and he knew Richard Strauss operas by heart. But he really didn't care to look players in the eye, so, or, or singers, uh, which as an opera conductor is tough. <laughs> so, so he would stand there, and he would make a little movement, and, and uh, pretty much everybody would come in, and then a singer would get off, and he'd start shaking because he was upset by it, but he never looked up at that singer and went, <laughs> you know, gave them the words. So I, I was there one night, and um, I was his assistant conductor for a couple seasons, and, and um, they were doing Rose and Cavalier, and he was down there, and of course he knew Rose and Cavalier by heart. And in the beginning of the third act, there's a very complex ensemble, and it was going horribly wrong, and wronger and wronger. And, and John was shaking more and more, um, but, but no cue came forth. So finally, uh, one of the singers, the tenor who was playing the innkeeper, started to sing everybody's part in the correct place until they got back on, and then he'd go to the next person's part. And he, he got them all back together, and the whole ensemble ended together. And it was just, it was a hair-raisingly frightening three minutes. <laughs> And at the end of the show, John Crosby went up to that tenor, and he didn't look him in the eye, because he never looked anybody in the eye, and he said, well, what, what part would you like to sing next season? <laughs> but, yes? I have a question about that diversity. I remember from my youth orchestra days, conductor that would just sort of go around in circles, and I never knew what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, so look, on a piano, you can do a lot of things, but if you want to play four notes, we all have to play the same four notes. For a conductor to evoke four notes from an orchestra, we can do it here, we can do it here, we can do it here. We can, you know, there's no right or wrong place, and every conductor you watch will have their own personal style, and of course their own personality, which is influencing that style. So Tilson Thomas who came from Bernstein, is very physically exuberant with his movement. And many people who um, hear a symphony concert are drawn into the physical world of the conductor. They enjoy watching the physical ballet, or, or lack of ballet, uh, of, of a conductor. Now, um, another, a person who was much more uh, contained was Adrian Bolt. He famously would just you know, give the beats, and if you watched closely enough, every emotive impulse was contained in there. And you can listen to his recordings and think, how is the London Symphony Orchestra playing like that when <laughs> he's doing, or Richard Strauss, who was reputed to be one of the great conductors of all time, and one of the players says, he was a great conductor, although you would never know it to watch him. <laughs> but somehow, he communicated everything, and he, he like Adrian Bolt, was very, he, he didn't use two hands, and uh, he said, never, never look encouragingly at the brass players. <laughs> and, <laughs> but the other thing he said over and over, of course, Richard Strauss wrote, you know, dozen operas in the latter part, of, after all the great symphonic 
poems. He, he wrote operas. And, and he said, even when you think they're playing as softly as possible, get them to play twice as soft. Because he said, if the audience understands all the words, they will be entertained. And one of his golden rules for young conductors is you are not up there to entertain yourself. You're up there to entertain the audience. And in an opera, if the texture of the orchestra is too thick, the singers can't be clearly heard, and that makes for bad opera. Um, the orchestra can't understand why, with their many years of study and incredible virtuosity, you've hired 60 of them to play so softly that you can hardly hear them. <laughs> and, and you have to have a ready answer for them, or they will be in a bad mood, and you don't want that. So, you know, I will try to say something like, any good orchestra can play, you know, loud, but only a great orchestra can really play very, very soft. <laughs> and uh, usually that works for about three minutes, and then they start to play louder again. But, Having, having an orchestra at the service uh, of the stage in opera is so exciting because then at the moment when all hell breaks loose and the orchestra's blazing fortissimo because nobody's singing, um, it's thrilling, right? If you hear loud playing all the time, it gets very boring. The same is true of our movements. If your conductor made this movement all the time, that probably ceased to be not only interesting but something you even looked at. Uh, although they might have been feeling this music is flowing, you know, and I have seen Eric Leinsdorf conduct the Chicago Symphony in the Capriccio Italiano, and he pretty much did that, and they sounded absolutely fabulous. Uh, and I don't think, had he not been there, they would have sounded as fabulous. Uh, um, he, he chose the right gesture for the right time. But you also have to choose the right moment to completely change your gesture so that the marked changes that happen in music register psychologically on the players, and the players respond to those movements with a whole different kind of playing. I think somebody, uh, Yoko, you're going to get your chance. Does anybody want to um, conduct a little bit? Please. So we're going to do Beethoven's Fifth for you. Um, now, Beethoven's Fifth, as you know, begins... And all you need to do is hear in your head the speed at which you want that to happen and go... Ba, 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 or ba, 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 or whatever speed you want. Okay, so I only need two clicks and an upbeat with a breath. Okay, <laughs> so that was excellent. Um, when, when you did the first one, you kept your movement going, and so I kept going. The second one where you went, if, if we were really trying to connect, I'd need you to do the same thing that you did on the first one. Um, so let's do it again. Now you want, you want me to stay on that note for a while, right? Ba, 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 ba. Now you do it again. I cut off at the end. <laughs> so Beethoven writes this weird thing. He writes ba 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 with a fermata over it, a sign, a musical sign that means hold this note for as long as you want. And then the next bar, he writes ba 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 ba, and he writes a bar with a fermata over it tied to another extra bar that doesn't have a fermata over it. And it's like, now, what was he thinking? Because if I get to hold the first one as long as I want and the second one as long as I want, what does that extra thing mean? Well, it probably means that he wanted the second one to be a little longer than the first one. 
but as a conductor, you'd have to decide how much longer. Uh, would anybody else like to conduct Beethoven's Fifth? Yes, come, Julie. Let's do this. So the first, the first ba 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 bomb and the second ba 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 bomb are loud, and then it gets soft, and then it gets louder. Oh, I like that part. <laughs> Okay, so, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, now you see, the conductor potentially wields infinite power. <laughs> which is a good thing uh, that you just have to be aware of so that you, you, know, you, don't, you don't abuse it. Um, I, I had the privilege of watching Ava Martone um, sing Turndot with... Um, Lauren Mazel at the Vienna State Opera. And uh, Ava Martone could hold a high note that sounded really great for a heck of a long time. But Mazel could hold his hand in the air even longer. <laughs> <laughs> so she's coming up, you know, and he just. <laughs> he wasn't always the nicest person. So. <laughs> Somehow, at some point, she decided to come off the note anyway. <laughs> I have a question about the, the practice that the, the conductor does with the orchestra before the performance. Oh. And how much time does it spend with that so that by the time of the performance, isn't it already just done? He can just stand? Yeah, that's so not the case, funnily okay. enough. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm the music director at Fort Worth Opera. And uh, we do, you know, say two productions a year where I'm given a wonderful cast of singers and uh, you know some of its new world premiere and some of its very familiar Carmen Boheme you know everybody's done it a million times and the orchestra and I rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and they can do just about anything and all of these operas have a lot of freedom in rubato um, and the singers come in at a dress rehearsal and suddenly everything is completely different mm -hmm. and somebody in the orchestra will invariably say that's not the way we rehearsed it. And again, I have to think of that thing to say that doesn't put anybody down, but makes everybody. I said, well, the reason we rehearse is so we can do it any way we want. Because the fact is, where the beat comes is never going to be the same in opera. And so uh, the orchestra has to take pride in the fact that they're ready to ride a horse that doesn't make the exact same movements every time it gets onto the racetrack. And uh, is this true of the singer? The singer suddenly gets on a note that feels good, and oh, guess what? We're going to just stretch that note, and then suddenly they're going and we go. And again, it's going to sound to the audience like that is exactly what we planned. Uh, and that's my job, to make it sound like that's exactly what we planned. Um, in Vienna, when I wore the silver tie, and uh, we did, we did uh, Pagliacci, Bayazzo. We did it in German, of course. And uh, the, the Cano, uh, excuse me, the Tonio, um, was a Romanian singer with one of the most glorious voices I have ever heard in my life and no capacity to remember music. <laughs> so he would be on stage singing up a storm and uh, suddenly he would jump. And I have the orchestra, well, the orchestra 
fortunately has things called rehearsal figures in their parts. So every eight bars or so, there's a number or a letter. And the singer would jump, and I would say, letter J, and boom, we would be right there. So we chased him around that score all night, <laughs> and he would finish, and the audience would jump up on their feet and scream and holler for him because he was so great. And they had no idea that we had done a jigsaw puzzle of Leon Cavallo, you know. Um, and, and all of that is actually fun. It's just um, a wild singer. A wild singer, yeah, a wild singer. Uh, can I tell a story about you, Mike? <laughs> All right, so Jenna uh, had many great successes as, a, as an opera singer. And one of the things that she was able to do during her 30-year career was make characters so believable that the audience stopped thinking, oh, I'm sitting in an opera house. They thought they were watching a real person undergoing a real thing with beautiful music. So we're doing The Marriage of Figaro, and I'm this is in New York State, and um, the, the Countess uh, is singing, my husband loved me, but where are those days now? He no longer loves me. Di qual beno And by this point, Jenna was so involved that she was actually crying on stage. The audience, who's as close almost as I am to you, could see that, the whole audience is crying. Jenna has turned upstage, her body is shaking. The orchestra's looking at me like, what's gonna happen now? <laughs> and I know what's gonna happen now, there's no monitor, and she's just gonna assume that I'll know exactly when it feels right, and that she's gonna start singing in the quietest possible tone, and that I'm gonna bring an entire orchestra in at exactly that moment. And that's exactly what happened, so I just, Bowman, you started to sing, and everybody in the audience just went, oh. <laughs> It was very gratifying, because ultimately, opera is not something to be listened to on recordings. It's something to be done live in a real opera house uh, with everybody in the audience living through the performance with the people on stage and um, feeling that, that it's being created in, in real time, uh, that it's not a trick of a recording but there's, there's intense and high-level uh, communication going on, and that all these emotions are being uh, put forth through music, but they're still very, very real, and in some cases, they can be even more intense because of the way the composer has been able to, to turn them into great music. Um, although I love conducting symphony, conducting opera is, is the greatest thing in the world, and. Um, Going to a great opera is also, you know, just so uh, thrilling. I, I can remember some of them because um, when I was a kid, I was in the San Francisco Boys Chorus, and we sang in all the operas that San Francisco Opera put on that had boy parts. Uh, lots of operas have boy parts. So, uh, you know, there are boys in The Magic Flute, there are boys in Tosca, there are boys in Carmen, there are boys in Falstaff, there are boys in Otello. And, uh, we got to be out there with these world-famous singers, and, and they would uh, be doing their thing, and there would be some famous conductor down in the pit, seemingly just floating through this very complex uh, score. And, and uh, I now know, many years later, <laughs> that it's not simple. But um, making it seem simple is good not only for the audience, but it's good for the players. 
and just as a kid watching down there as some of these conductors could uh, negotiate all the things that were going on. And then Kurt Herbert Adler, who was the impresario of the company, would come up and say, oh, you're doing that all wrong. It has to be much faster. And somehow the conductor would know how to say, yes, maestro, you are so right. And then he would do exactly the same thing. But, <laughs> you know, he'd move his elbows differently and Adler would say, that's it, that's it. And so there are many, many parts to the art. different times. You know, that, that has never occurred to me. Uh, I, I have done a lot of crazy things on the podium, but um, the thing that, that plagues me is that I sometimes lose my baton. And uh, it, it flies off into some section, who knows where, and sometimes resurfaces and sometimes never comes back. But uh, if, if you are primarily focused on the music, uh, extraneous gestures don't distract the players. They, they know, uh, you know, basically everybody agrees on the same roadmap. So the nuances we're talking about are fractions of seconds and the, the amount of extra tone, if, if it could be measured, you know, it wouldn't be uh, gigantic, except in those cases we talked about where there's a sudden loud chord or something like that. But I, I did have the opposite experience once, which let me know how good it is that it almost never happens. Pittsburgh Opera and I were touring Madame Butterfly, and uh, we were in York, Pennsylvania, and in this city there was already a symphony orchestra, so we engaged that symphony orchestra. Um, I had done this butterfly with the cast by now 25 times, so we were seasoned. We knew just how it went. And uh, you remember in the third act of Madame Butterfly, um, there's a moment when Cho Cho San realizes that Pinkerton has married Kate, uh, has married Kate and, and uh, she's, she's no longer interesting to him, and there's dead silence, and I'm standing there not moving a muscle, and suddenly this bassoon just goes, I was like, what? So, I don't know what it was, uh, but I'm glad it only happened once. <laughs> you know, you can't control everything, and I think part of conducting is accepting that while uh, much of the time you have a lot of control and, and you can all work together and this fabulous thing happens, things can happen that are beyond your control and, and all you can do is go on. <laughs> so yes, sir. I did not do that. Continue for a musician. I'm just graduated Julia. I'm coming to audition for the orchestra. What the hell do I know about what a conductor does and the nuances. Have I well, anything in school? Of course, because Juilliard or any music school has several orchestras and you're playing several times a week with wonderful conductors and probably anybody who's gone as far as Juilliard has already had orchestral experience in a youth orchestra or in their high school or, or something. Um, but when you do say you come to audition, you sit behind a screen. Do you all know this? Auditions are blind. So the panel doesn't know if you're male or female, old or young. Uh, they know nothing except the sound of the instrument that you make. 
Now, this has, um, it sounds like it's more um, foolproof than it is because I remember holding auditions for Lake George Opera and this flute player starts and well went, oh, that's Brenda. Because, <laughs> you know, you, you know what people's playing sounds like. How do they phrase? Do they, uh, do they tend to play on the sharp side? Or, or are they what? Or are they what? And um, now orchestral auditions are done in several stages where the first stage is you would come out of Juilliard, you would sit behind a screen for 30 seconds, play your tiny excerpt, and you and 80% of the other players, thank you, you go home. Uh, and then the 20% who remain play for three minutes, and you know three of those people are chosen. And then those three people are put through the ringer, and the conductor and all the members of the section listen to you play all kinds of things, and they get a feel for your playing. But that is not enough because an orchestra is like a family, and so then, if they're considering hiring a player, that player sits in the orchestra maybe for a week, or maybe even for a year, a whole season, uh, to see how they mesh with other players in the orchestra. So it's a complex process. Once you get that chair in the orchestra in the modern world, uh, it takes an act of God to remove you from it. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's why orchestras want to make really sure that um, the player they choose is the right player for, for the position. Uh, yes, sir? Uh, how would you describe your conducting style and how did it evolve? Slowly. Um, <laughs> I, I was not physically gifted. I mean, there are uh, conductors like Lauren Mazel who conducted his first you know, radio broadcast on NBC when he was 11 years old. And just the way there are violin prodigies and, and uh, piano prodigies, there are conducting prodigies, James Levine, um, Bernstein. But um, for me, the process was uh, figuring out through the tedious process of that work, that didn't work, uh, what works, uh, what works for me. And my personal um, feeling is that different musicians have different things that are most important to them. Some people feel if rhythm is the basis of music, then clear rhythmic beats are the basis of their conducting. Uh, that was never me. For me, uh, a musical phrase is like something that somebody says, like a line in a play, even if there are no words, and I want to somehow imbue it with the same meaning that I think the composer might have thought. However, uh, that can be a more time-consuming and frustrating process for an orchestra than when you just lay it down because uh, they might say, well, why, you know, the, the music doesn't have any um, signs that it should get louder or softer, and they're correct, it doesn't. However, I might feel uh, this phrase has to go like this just because intuitively I know that to be true. I know it's not the only way, but it's, I, I'm the guy. At that moment, I'm the guy. So uh, that has taken longer for me, personally, to evolve. Um, however, conductors, as you know, live a really long time, so I have still <laughs> plenty of time to work this out. Janice. Well, if they know their part and they've done it half a dozen times, they don't rely on me for cues unless there's a stage business where they're running across the stage and they need something. 
Um, so in that case, they need it. But somebody who's doing a part for the first time or doing a world premiere uh, clearly needs almost everything cued. Um, I was the assistant conductor for Rosenkavalier at Santa Fe Opera, and a wonderful baritone was singing Faninal. And I was cueing, and I was mouthing, and I was giving him everything. And he finally stopped, and he said, what am I doing wrong? I said, nothing. He said, well, then quit doing all that stuff and just let me sing. So, <laughs> that's what I said. You figure it out as you go along. All right. Thank you all so much. Good night.